Uh, if you have a Bible with you, could I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? It's page 1161 in the, the Red Pew Bibles. Two, uh, two weeks ago, we, we started this new series called Dying to Serve, which is based on Paul's second letter to the church and the Christians in Corinth, a letter that is, as we explained, widely recognized as the most difficult to understand of all Paul's letters. But at the heart of it, and amongst all the meaty material and the deeply theological language, is the call to and the priority of Christian service. What is it? And more importantly, what does it look like? And a fortnight ago, based on the opening verses of chapter 1, we looked at the thought about our service as conduits of comfort. That as Christian saints, and remember that is who we are. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. That is who we are, that is what we are. Uh, But as Christian saints, we worship and serve the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles. Why? Or part of this involves so that we can comfort those in any troubles with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So in other words, we let it flow through us. It's not just for our personal and private consumption. We pass comfort on. We pay it forward. God does not comfort us to be comfortable, but to make us comforters. So we are conduits of comfort, which is an amazing privilege and an awesome responsibility in terms of Christian service. This evening we're going to jump to chapter 5 and think about a second uh, critical act of service, that as Christian saints we are also called to be or invited to be or urged to be ministers of reconciliation. So uh, let's stand together for the public reading of God's word. Starting at verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade people. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against him. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin 
to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Take a seat. Let me ask you a question. Uh, What motivates you? What motivates you to do the things you do? Uh, Motivation can be the difference between achieving and not achieving, between getting something done or leaving it undone, getting fit or not, losing weight or not, passing that exam or not, visiting that friend or not, volunteering for that role or not, spending time with that person or not. Motivation is so important in almost every area and aspect of life. And as I was preparing for this this evening, I came across these four reasons why. The first is it helps you get started. It's the kickstart that's essential to get going. If you're unmotivated or demotivated, you tend to avoid doing certain things or you delay them for as long as possible. Secondly, it helps you keep going. Getting started is one thing, but keeping going is another. Whatever it is you do, there will be inevitable challenges to face and obstacles to negotiate. And without motivation, you can become easily discouraged or disillusioned. You may even consider giving up. Thirdly, motivation makes you do more than necessary. If you are motivated, you tend to go further. You tend to dig deeper. While others only do what is necessary, motivated people go the extra mile. They do more. Fourthly, motivation makes the journey fun. Without it, the way ahead can sometimes seem long and difficult, but with motivation, you're far more likely to enjoy the journey and see it as a kind of adventure. But why am I talking about motivation? Is this a self-help seminar or is this a sermon? Uh, Because although all of this might be interesting, it might even be helpful just to take that away and sort of apply it to your work life or your home life or your personal fitness regime. But what's it got to do with Christian service? What's it got to do with 2 Corinthians chapter 5? What's it got to do with my calling to be a minister of reconciliation, to engage in the ministry of reconciliation? I mean, I didn't notice the word motivation in our reading. Well, before I attempt to make the connections. Uh, let's think about the ministry itself. And, and if you do have a copy of God's Word open, it's going it's to really be helpful. What, what exactly is this ministry of reconciliation? And why is it, according to many people, the most significant ministry or service that anyone can be involved in? Well, let me start by making it really clear that we have all, every Christian has been given or handed this ministry. I don't know if this is how you see yourself this evening, that I am a minister of reconciliation. Look at verses 18 and 19. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now, whatever way you look at this, it's an incredible thought. God has entrusted us, you and I, with the greatest and most life-changing information known to humanity. 
that human beings can be reconciled to God. That we can be his friend rather than his enemy. That we can be in that relationship that Bennett was talking about. Reconciliation means what? Do you think of reconciliation? What what sort of thoughts come to mind? Well, definition. Bringing estranged parties together into a relationship of love and unity. It's about moving from alienation and hostility to peace and friendship. Now let me attempt to explain this. As human beings, we were estranged from God. All infected with this common human virus called sin. And that disconnects, that drives a wedge between the created us and our creator. Not only that, it creates tension. It leaves us living for ourselves, to quote verse 15. And living for ourselves, when you think about it, that's really what sin is. It's doing it my way. Sin is self-centered living without reference to God. But and this is the sort of incredible reality and truth of the gospel. Despite all of that, God has reached out to us and has reconciled us to himself through the death and sacrifice of his son. Look at verses 14 and 15. They tell us that Jesus died for all, for all, And verse 18 explains that it is God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. What I'm saying is this. We did nothing. We didn't do it. We didn't reach out to God. He reached out to us. We didn't try and repair the broken and damaged relationship. God did. It's entirely God's initiative. We didn't deserve it. We never could. We never will. But irrespective, God gives us what we don't deserve. And ultimately, what is that? That is grace. And as you wrestle with the extent of God's grace, which flies in the face of a world and a culture that says, you only get what you deserve. Grace flies in the face of that. It says you get what you don't deserve. But as you kind of wrestle with this whole concept and idea, you discover there's even more to it. Look at verse 19. It actually seems to imply that God is ready and willing to be reconciled with people, hear this, just the way they are. God is not counting people's sins against them. I'm just quoting the text. Let let, let that filter. God is not counting people's sins against. Somehow, they are not a barrier to knowing God. Somehow. Somehow, they do not prevent us from experiencing his life-changing love and grace. But hang on a minute, and I can see some of you looking slightly concerned. Am I suggesting, or does this imply that God God kind of overlooks sin. That he turns a blind eye to it. Am I indicating that sin doesn't actually matter that much? That God is somehow soft on sin? No. 
Not at all. Sin actually is a barrier between God and us. And God, more than any of us could ever, recognizes the deadly seriousness of sin. But here is the life kind of and mind-altering good news of the Christian faith. God has not gone light on sin. Rather, he has dealt with it completely through the death of Jesus. Completely dealt with it. As verse 21 explicitly says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That is an incredible thought. God's not counting our sins against us. Why? Because God made him who had no sin be sin for us. And how does the verse end? So that we might become the righteousness of God. It's one of the reasons why this verse has been described as the definitive description of grace. Undeserved favor. Christ was willing to receive what he did not deserve, which was all of our sins and the infinite wrath of God against them. And as a direct result, God is then free to offer you and I what we in a million years would never deserve. And that is reconciliation with God as a completely free gift. And whenever you accept this or embrace this, the Bible teaches you're no longer estranged from God. The friendship, the relationship is reestablished. We're reunited with God and we become, to use the language of verse 17, new creations. Literally, we're recreated. The old way of living selfishly for ourselves goes and we begin, as these verses talk about, to live for Jesus. We live to the beat of a different drum with a new agenda, a new perspective and ultimately a new destiny. This is all a part of what reconciliation is about and means. But part of the mind-blowing aspect to, to all of this is that once we're reconciled to God, and I know, I, I, I realize that that's the vast majority of people here this evening. You have been reconciled to God. You are in this relationship with God through Jesus. But then it says... God gives us this ministry. Verse 19, he actually commits its message to us. So God has done everything necessary to make peace with humanity. The cross has said it all. God's grace is enough. But he has chosen to make his appeal to be reconciled to him through you and I. I don't understand that. I don't. Why? Why choose this way? And yet it says he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. He has committed to us this message that we can be reconciled to God. Verse 20 says we become Christ's ambassadors. You and I for a Christian are Christ's representatives in this world. And it is God's intention 
that we bring and communicate God's offer of peace to our friends and our families and our neighbors and our colleagues and our world. And let me say this, because some of you are thinking, this is not all about service. Let me say this. There is no greater act of service than you can do for another human being than to share the amazing, life-changing message of reconciliation with them. There's no greater act of service that you can do for someone to tell them that they can be reconciled to God. And therefore, our calling and immense privilege, despite how scary or how intimidated or how inadequate we often feel, is, and I'm now quoting the second half of verse 20, it's to implore people on Christ's behalf. This is, this is our calling, to implore people on Christ's behalf. Please be reconciled to God. Or as the New Living Translation captures it, we speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Come home. Come back into the relationship you were created to enjoy. You don't have to be an enemy of God. There doesn't have to be tension. There doesn't have to be disconnect. There doesn't have to be distance. There can be intimacy. There can be friendship. There can be relationship. Quoting uh, statistics, and especially whenever we're talking about the spiritual and eternal well-being of people, is always dangerous. I know that. But statistics tell us that something like 85% of Christians who come to faith come through the influence of a friend. Somebody who has been a messenger of reconciliation in their life. Somebody who's plead to them, listen, come back to God. Through word, through deed, through a life lived out in front of them, but that's how the vast majority of people come to faith, it would seem. God makes his appeal through us. There's no plan B, that's it. We might think or imagine there's got to be a better way. We're also weak. We're all so vulnerable. We're all so fragile. I don't know about you, but I get it wrong so many times. Get it wrong more than I get it right. But remember, God knows that we're just jars of clay. To quote a phrase from chapter 4. But it's into these clay jars that God has put this treasure. This message. This gospel. This hope trusted it to us clay jars that we would go and then be ministers of reconciliation but what about all the talk about motivation why did I begin with that well I reckon every Christian here recognizes or realizes the need to share their faith I'll guarantee every Christian who's here this evening knows that it is their responsibility to communicate the gospel in some way. But the reality is, again speaking personally, we sometimes lack the desire to do it. We lack it for various reasons, and that's where I believe motivation comes in. And where motivation makes all the difference in the world. And if you read these verses very carefully, you discover that Paul reveals his motivation for being a minister of reconciliation. 
he reveals what motivates him to get this message out there and present it to as many people as possible. And I want to suggest that these could and should be or become the things that motivate us. Just two things. Two things that motivated Paul. Two things that can motivate us to speak about those areas of life that really matter. To get beyond the superficial and get to the substantial. To get beyond the temporary things of life to talk about the eternal things. Two things. The first is the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade people. Question. Do we? Do I know what it is to fear the Lord? Or have I lost this? Or in danger of losing this? Because it seems here that a fear of the Lord motivated Paul or prompted him or encouraged him to share his faith. Now to fear God is not about being afraid of God. And I know we've covered this territory before. Time and time again in the Bible, the fear of the Lord means to respect God. To honor God. To take God seriously. It's about reverential awe. It's about recognizing the greatness, the bigness, the sheer magnitude of God's character To fear God is about worship. But in this context, there's something specific, it would seem, that fuels or rather nurtures an entirely appropriate and vital fear. Because look again at this verse. It starts with those two words, since then, or in certain translations, therefore. And so we've got to take a look at what has gone before. What has the writer, in this case Paul, been talking about, referring to previously? And if you look up at verse 10, you discover that he's been discussing the reality of judgment. The final judgment. And he says this. For we must all, so no exceptions here, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And everyone may receive what is due to them for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And that is an incredibly serious prospect. The negative consequences of Christ's judgment are almost unbearable to contemplate. And Paul doesn't want anyone to appear before the judgment seat of Christ unprepared, unpersuaded, unconnected, still living for themselves. And the possibility of that happening is solemn and sobering. And so this is major. And so for Paul, there is a fearful dimension in knowing that Christ is the judge of all. And one day will judge all. And if we're here this evening and have somehow lost sight of that big eternal perspective. If we have forgotten or somehow diluted and I know this is often the case in, in my life. The inevitable judgment that lies ahead for every single human being. We have lost sight of that thought. 
then my prayer is that we may be reawakened to the knowledge of its reality. And that, in turn, will foster an appropriate fear of the Lord, which will then motivate us to pick up our role as ministers of reconciliation. Paul says, listen, since then, in light of the reality of judgment, we know what it is to fear the Lord. Take God seriously. And therefore, we try to persuade people. Come back to God. And second, nearly done, second motivating factor for Paul was Christ's love. Look at verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. A healthy fear of God is essential. But so is a constant appreciation of Christ's dying and undying love. Now, drawing attention to both of these in one breath might be a problem for some people, like the fear of God on one hand and then the love of Christ on the other. How can you have both? And yet they exist. They're both extremely positive experiences. One might seem like a negative, and yet it isn't, because to fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To fear the Lord acts as a catalyst for worship, for surrender. Yes, it's serious, but it's also potentially enlightening. And so Paul is motivated by the fear of God and the love of Christ. And just as we we draw towards this table, I just want to finish by kind of reflecting on, on the love of Christ that compels Paul. Because you see, for Paul, being a minister of reconciliation and and trying to persuade people and and calling people back to God, it wasn't about duty, it wasn't about obligation. Paul wasn't sharing this all because he had to, but because his heart had been taken captive by the love of Jesus. And because his heart had been taken captive by the love of Jesus, he absolutely wanted to call people back to God. There is no more powerful motivator in the human realm than love. To know that you are loved is so empowering, so affirming. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. To know that you are loved by God in Christ is life-altering. The problem is we sometimes lose touch with or sight of God's outrageous, unconditional love for each one of us. And that is why Paul on another occasion prayed that the early church would keep growing in their comprehension of God's love. Keep growing in your comprehension of God's love. But that begs the question, how? How do you keep growing in it? What was it about the love of Christ that compelled him and should compel us? Well, back to the 14th verse of our chapter. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. You see, it's the cross. And it's maintaining a constant focus on the cross that constantly and regularly, consistently screams of the dying love and undying love of Christ for each one of us. And as Paul reflects on what that meant and means on this ultimate expression of love, what did it do? It motivated him. As Paul thought about this reality that Christ 
died for all, me. It motivated him to call others back into this relationship. And when our motivation wanes, we've got to keep returning to the cross. Keep coming back to the table, which provides a graphic reminder of the sacrifice. And so just two questions to finish. Do you know the fear of the Lord? And are you compelled by the love of Christ? Because if so, you will embrace the ministry of reconciliation that you have been given and you'll embrace it with renewed passion and commitment. And then you may leave here to serve others like you've maybe never served them before. May God help us.